Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analyst Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. Good to see you both. Hey, hey. Hey, Chris. We are halfway through 2021. We're going to review some of the big stories from the first half of the year, preview what investors should be keeping their eyes on in the second half of the year, and we've got some recommendations for your summer reading. Let's start big picture, Jason. For those who own S&P 500 index funds, the best first step for investors starting out, it was a great first half of the year. The S&P 500 up 14.5%, the second best performance this century. That's not a bad headline for the first half of the year, but what's your business or investing headline for the first half of 2021? Yeah, I mean, those are all great headlines. We've talked about all of this stuff over the first half of the year, but the thing that, yeah, the one thing that really stands out to me, and I hate to give this the attention, but the fact of the matter is, it is something that will likely continue in, in, in investors, particularly new investors, need to keep this in mind. It's this whole idea of meme stocks or meme stonks, as it were, Chris. Uh, Companies like AMC and GameStop, we've seen clean energy fuels jumping into the mix here recently with this as well. Uh, This idea now that the internet and social media has has really just just flipped so many things on its head, and the, the market is no exception there. I mean, it's not to say that AMC or GameStop or Clean Energy Fuels can't have uh, success in the future. Maybe maybe they do. I'm, I'm not making that call. What I am saying, though, these are abjectly, fundamentally challenged businesses today. And, and the valuations that have been ascribed to these companies, the, the, the volatility, right? If you look at the charts of what these stocks have done over the past over the past year, it, it it's abnormal. It's 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 very it's scary from an investor's perspective. And I think for experienced investors, you know, we look at this and we think, you know, to me, the scariest part of this is the new investors that that come in on on something like this, right? This does attract a new demographic of investors, younger investors, and, and that's great. That's what we want: younger investors getting started. But you have to remember the rules of the game that you're playing, right? You have to know the game that you're playing and make sure you understand uh, what what the what the what the end goal is. Because if if you're jumping in here thinking that this is a way to get rich quickly. I mean, a lot of people are going to get hurt. My fear is that you know people jump into something like this, thinking it's a great opportunity to make some quick money. They lose money, then they come up with the oh yeah, the market is rigged, like I've always said, and they never invest again. And so, so you've lost an entire generation, or at least a part of, of a generation of investors through through something like this. So it, it's something that is going to continue. I mean, that's another debate, but but I think it's just something to keep in mind as as the the year goes on, as as uh, we move into to, to 2022 and beyond. It's just it's it, it's a scary time. Emily Flippin, what's your headline for the first half? Well, it's really hard to compete with the stocks, but (laughs) (laughs) I know when something is big because people in my life reach out to me about it unsolicited, ask my opinion, and so many people have been talking to me about inflation in the first half of 2021. I really get the sense it's on everybody's mind, rising to 3 or 4% as opposed to that 2% that the Federal Reserve has historically targeted. And in my case, I think it's kind of silly for me to speculate on inflation. I, I'm not an economist, but more importantly, I don't work at the Federal Reserve. I don't know how they're going to respond to potential inflation or how the public may respond to unexpected inflation. 
I, I generally think that investors have little to no control over any of these things. So if you're already an employed long-term investor with a diversified portfolio, I don't think inflation should really change the way that you manage your stocks. So Jason, if inflation and meme stonks um, got a lot of attention in the first half, what is something under the radar um, that you think is important that you know maybe didn't get as much attention? Well, and it's a developing story, so maybe we'll hear more about it as the year progresses. I think we will. But it's the infrastructure bill and the opportunities that should come from it. Uh, we're seeing this Invest in America Act sort of making its way through the system, and, and, and we will see something at the end of it all. Right now, in its current form, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $700 billion or so. Uh, but, but this is, this is as, as, it, as it sounds, it's investing in our infrastructure and and it's it's something that's that's sorely needed. Uh, the American Society of Civil Engineers uh, gives our overall infrastructure a C minus today, uh, and that's nothing new, right? I mean, that's something that's been going on for a while. We really do need to invest in our infrastructure, water, transportation, technology, right? I mean, this this whole move into five G. I mean, these investments need to be made. It sounds like we're starting to get uh, some some bipartisan agreement there in some in some shape, but uh, we are seeing a lot of companies out there that are viewing this as a generational opportunity, uh, playing offense. And I mean, I'm looking at a company, Rob Painter, CEO of Trimble, a stock I recommended to, to members a year ago. I mean, that, that that was exactly the language he used. This is a generational opportunity. They're playing offense. I, see, I think we'll see a lot of companies taking this perspective here uh, over the course of the remainder of the year uh, on, on into the following years. And this is a big opportunity. A lot of companies will benefit. Emily, what about you? Mine is actually really similar to Jason's, although it's a specific company. It's Procore. The ticker is PCOR. They actually IPO'd this year after delaying their IPO from last year. And I feel like nobody was really talking about it, despite a lot of excitement headed into their potential IPO in 2020. They're a construction management and workflow platform. So very much building off of some of that infrastructure that Jason was talking about. And it's important because so much of the construction process right now is so manual. There are so many different parties. They don't communicate well. It's still very paper-based. So Procore is coming into the game to kind of change that. They do go up against some big competitors, Autodesk being one, and they're not profitable, but they are operating in free cash flow positive. So definitely worth a look. Jason, let's start to look ahead to the second half of the year. Um, obviously, from a broad standpoint, really strong first half of the year, but it wasn't strong for every company and it wasn't strong for every industry. When you think about the second half of 2021, who needs a strong second half? Yeah, I'm going to go company specific here and call out Peloton. I think uh, it's a business with tremendous potential. I mean, it had a tremendous year over the last 12 months. The stock has better than doubled. Uh, but you, on the other side of the coin there, it's, it's down 20% year to date. There have been a lot of headlines out there uh, lately that have really put this company in the crosshairs. Uh, a lot of questions in regard to the treadmill. Uh, obviously, there are some, some safety concerns there that they, they, need, to, they need to figure out. Uh, bad press is always something that I think uh, is, is surmountable, but, but they need to actually prove that they can get past it. Um, we're seeing them making investments into wearables. I think that's interesting. I, I like the idea that they're uh, bringing out uh, virtual exercise programs that don't even require their equipment. I think they're doing a lot of really cool things. Apparel. I mean, they have a tremendous brand, I think, in that fitness space. 
I mean, the other thing to keep in mind, though, I mean, lockdowns are over. People are going back out. And, and just anecdotally speaking, every time I drive by the gym on the way to the burger joint, Chris, trust me, I'm not going to the gym. I'm going to the burger joint. <laughs> but I got to drive past the gym to get there. I'm seeing more and more people in that gym. So it's it's just interesting to see that, that those walls are starting to come down. People are feeling a little bit more comfortable. I, I just wonder what that bodes for Peloton going forward because, as we know, investing is a forward-looking exercise. Emily? The business I'm looking at is QDEL, actually. I think they need a strong second half to 2021. The ticker is QDEL. QDEL is an immunoassay and molecular diagnostics business, which is really just a fancy way of saying they make diagnostic healthcare products. And pre-COVID, a large part of its business was actually just seasonal flu testing. And as you can imagine, they had a great 2020 because they were actually one of the first FDA-approved antigen tests for COVID. So as we head into 2021, the business has really struggled as COVID testing has really wound down. But I don't think that's the reason why they need a strong half of their 2021. I actually think the real reason is the anticipated launch of their Savannah Molecular Analyzer in the back half of 2021. It's a big launch that has been expected for a decade now, Chris, so a long time. They're saying the fourth quarter of 2021 is when they'll get it into physician's office. They need to do that because investors are getting impatient. So just to be clear, they've been saying this is coming for a decade, but now it's really coming in the fourth quarter. <laughs> I, I'm skeptical. I'm hopeful, but skeptical. Up next, a couple things investors need to watch in the second half of 2021, along with a few titles to put on your summer reading list. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. It's you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Emily Flippin. Hope everyone has a safe and fun Independence Day weekend. Remember, the stock market is closed on Monday, July 5th, and you know what else July 5th is, guys? It's the 40th birthday of Saram Bukhari, one of the dozens of listeners in Cupertino, California. So wow. happy birthday. Happy birthday. birthday. Thank, thank you for listening. We love it. Uh, Emily, you know, every year in December on Motley Fool Money, we do our re- review show for the entire year and we hand out CEO of the year. Who is your early front runner for that award? I'm going to call out somebody who I think doesn't get enough attention despite running an amazing business, and that's Forrest Xiaodong Li. He's the CEO and founder of C Limited. C Limited is an amazing Southeast Asian business that is rapidly making headwinds into new markets. I, I believe it is the largest uh, company in Southeast Asia right now. So Li has really led this company to a certain level of success that we haven't seen before in that region. Um, they're the founder and owner of Garena, which has Free Fire, and Li took this gaming company, this ton of cash generated by this free-to-play mobile game, Free Fire, and turned it into an e-commerce powerhouse. It is truly becoming, some call it the Amazon of Southeast Asia, but I really think they're spreading way beyond just their locality based in Singapore, heading into markets like Brazil to compete with even the Mercado Libres of the world. So I think an underrated CEO, again, largest company coming out of Southeast Asia. So if they keep that up into 2020, second half of 2021, then I I could see that being a winner at the end of the year. Jason, who's on your list? 
Yeah, you know, I had to noodle this one for a little while because there are a lot of CEOs out there that have done a really uh, strong job over the past year and in year to date. I'm going to go with Dan Springer, the CEO of DocuSign, uh, a company we, we talk about frequently on the show's uh, stock that I own. I really, really enjoyed being a shareholder of this business. It's, it's very difficult. I'm going to use a golf analogy here for you real quick, Chris. It's very difficult in golf. If you're playing in a golf tournament, it's difficult to follow up a really good round in golf with another good round, right? It's just you've set the bar so high. It's just it's just difficult to do. With DocuSign in 2020, the stock was up 200%. And this was for obvious reasons. I mean, the business performed very well, and then there was also just the narrative throughout 2020 of why DocuSign was a compelling value. Uh, but he's really following that year up with another encouraging performance here with the stock. And, and I'll tell you, I, I, I can understand why. The, the quarter that they just turned in, I mean, top line growth of 58%. They raised guidance again. By the end of this year, this is going to be a $2 billion revenue company with 80% gross margins, a massive suite of offerings, a lot of shares still to capture. I mean, when you look at the competitive landscape there, I think the name that always gets thrown out there is Adobe. And I think that's valid. Adobe's a very strong business with its document cloud offering. DocuSign is growing faster. It's picking up share. And so I think that's something to keep in mind. I think this is just going to be a, a new way of doing business. People are buying into to, to the idea here. Uh, so, so I think that Dan Springer is, is absolutely uh, in, in the mix there. And, and I will offer up just an honorable mention. I need to offer an initial impression of Jonathan Webb with App Harvest. I mean, I just think I love what he's doing with this company. I think he's, he's, uh, he's tackling a really important issue in global food supply and uh, pre-revenue business coming in as a SPAC. He got a lot of hurdles to clear, and it seems like he's doing a pretty good job clearing them. Emily, it can be a stock, an industry, a trend. What is one thing you're going to be watching in the second half of the year? Well, Chris, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the cannabis industry and the potential developments that we could see in the second half of 2021. Recently, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer um, has, has said he doesn't want to pass banking reform despite it being sent from the House to the Senate. Instead, Schumer is prioritizing full legalization bills, which he hopes to bring to the Senate sometime this year. That's a lofty goal that may or may not go anywhere. But I do think it says something about the need for some sort of federal reform in the way that we handle cannabis and marijuana in this country. Uh, the Supreme Court has even said that unfair tax laws harm state legal cannabis businesses. So we're getting some momentum on the federal front for change here. So it's definitely something that, that I'll be watching as a cannabis investor myself, but I think everybody should be watching in the second half of 2021. Jason, what are you going to be watching? Yeah, it's it's not news that <laughs> we're in a little bit of a, uh, a semiconductor uh, supply chain crunch here, right? The semiconductor shortage we've been talking about for most of the year. Um, I, I think the real question is how long is it going to last? We've seen language from a lot of the the bigger names in this space from Qualcomm to Corvo to Intel initially talking about things picking back up in the back half of 2021. It's starting to look like this may last a little bit longer than, than even, even they assumed initially. Ford just recently came out with headlines here that Ford is going to reduce production at eight plants, six of them in the U.S., starting in August due to semiconductor shortages. Uh, this is something that's going to impact this business material. I mean, they say they're going to lose around 50% of vehicle production just in the second quarter alone due to this. It should impact earnings by around $2.5 billion. 
uh, 1.1 million units of production. I mean, that's just an automaker. You're seeing the same type of language from companies like John Deere. And then you look at, at the companies in this space, Intel, AMD. I mean, they are all starting to see signs that this is going to drag on a little bit longer than initially anticipated. So it'll be very interesting, I think, in the back half of this year. to let's pay attention to the language on these earnings calls because I think it'll be uh, very enlightening. Our email address is radio at fool.com. Got an email from Eric Wallace who writes, how about a summer reading list? I need some good finance and market books. Emily, you got a recommendation? Well, I have a bit of a cop-out recommendation because <laughs> I, I actually haven't read this book yet, but it was recommended to me by one of my friends. It's on my reading list for what I should read next. And when I looked at it, I thought to myself, how have I not read this book yet? It sounds really interesting. It's called Financial Shenanigans by Howard Schillett. It's case studies for fraud and reporting offenses by largely U.S.-based businesses. So if you're interested in accounting scandals like I am, it's definitely a book you should check out. Jason? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading more for entertainment now than ever before. So I've read a lot of investing books for my life. And I think uh, yeah, there are plenty of good ones out there that are also entertaining. I, Bad Blood by John Carreyrou is a really good one. The Space Barons by Christian Davenport. We just had Christian on uh, Motley Fool Money uh, last week. I mean, those are some interesting investing-related books that also tell really good stories. Uh, another one that I think just makes you smarter, The Magic of Reality by Richard Dawkins. It's not investing-related, but trust me, it's very entertaining. Uh, and then ultimately, I, there's no substitute for just reading 10Ks and earnings transcripts. So much great information in those documents. I would, I would encourage you to check those documents out in regard to your favorite companies. It occurred to me the other day that uh, we're just a few years away from 2025, which means there's going to be all sorts of quarter century lists that come out. Oh, and yeah. I think when yeah. that happens, The Big Short by Michael Lewis is going to be on a bunch of lists of the best investing books of the century so far. And I love that movie, but the book is so much richer as books tend to be when it comes to movie adaptations. Um, and I just think there are so many great takeaway lessons about hive mentality and uh, thinking for yourself. It's, it's really, it's one of those books that I've read a couple of times. Um, and I don't think I can say that about any other investing or, or <laughs> stock market book. All right, Jason Moser, Emily Flippin, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Chris. Up next, one of my favorite interviews of the past few years, best-selling author Dan Heath on how creating a powerful experience for customers can deliver economic upside for businesses. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Dan Heath and his brother Chip have written several bestsellers. A couple of years back, I got the chance to interview Dan in front of a live audience about one of their most popular books, The Power of Moments, Why Certain Experiences Have Extraordinary Impact. One of the things early in the book is uh, something you and your brother refer to as the Disney paradox, which is um, both illuminating and in some ways a little... Uh, I don't want to say disappointing, but um, one of the things that you bring to light is that problem solving for businesses um, almost doesn't get the credit it deserves. That, that peak moments 
are outweighed significant or uh, get a, a, an undue amount of credit uh, for what a business does for any given individual. Yeah, so let's let's start with the Disney paradox, which anybody who's been to a theme park, I think, can relate to this, and that is. If we were to monitor your moment-by-moment -moment happiness levels, you know, via some advanced technology, I think it's pretty safe to say that for the majority of those moments during the day, you would have been far happier sitting on your couch at home. Right? It's less humid there, less crowded. Uh, you can get lunch for less than 18 bucks. Uh, but looking back on that experience, you might consider it one of the highlights of your year. And so that's a kind of paradox. How could something that wasn't that fun in the moment, or at least in the aggregate of the moments, be a highlight? And the answer is something that psychology can explain, and that is that, that even though most of the moments may have been average or even unpleasant, you know, in 96 degree humid Orlando temperatures, there were moments that mattered. There were, you know, the adrenaline high of coming off of the Space Mountain roller coaster, or that moment when Mickey Mouse comes up and delights your child and, and the moment when they pick out a souvenir and they, they're hugging this little, you know, plush stuffed animal of Pluto and those are the kind of moments that your couch never creates. And what's interesting is psychologists know a lot about how we remember experiences and they say that there's basically two principles here that, that say a lot about what experiences are made of, what great experiences are made of. And the first thing is called duration neglect, which says that when we remember our experiences, the length of those experiences tends to sort of fade out, wash away. And what we're left with are snippets or scenes or moments from those experiences. It, it's easy enough to see this for yourself. Just think about a family vacation from a year or two ago and you'll notice there's no sense in which you can kind of load up the whole film of your family vacation and watch it end to end. It's, a lot of it's gone. But what you remember are the special moments. The second point from psychology is when we talk about these moments that are left, there is a logic to which moments we remember. And there are two particular kinds of moments that we disproportionately recall. One of them is called the peak of the experience, which in a positive experience is the most positive moment. That's the Space Mountain moment. That's the, the cute Mickey Mouse encounter. And then there's the ending, the peak and the ending. And so this tells us a lot about being in the business of providing experiences to other people, whether that's our customers, the patients that we take care of, the students we serve, even our own kids. And part of what it says is that we may have the wrong mental model about what a great experience is made of. Because in a lot of situations, our instinct is to make an experience better. You go and survey people about it. You look at what they're complaining about, and then you fix those problems. Right? It makes sense. That's how you make something better. You fix the problems. But fixing problems doesn't make people happy. Fixing problems whelms people. Not overwhelms, not underwhelms, just whelms. So think about it. If you're driving down the road, you go three miles of highway without hitting a single pothole. Like, you're not giddy about that. Uh, you're whelmed. Uh, your cable TV functions exactly as it's supposed to for a full month. You're not going to look back nostalgically on that a year later. You're, you know, remember that month? You're just whelmed. And whelmed is pretty good. I don't mean to, to, to belittle whelmed. Whelmed means that people basically got what they expected. Uh, you know, the alternative to whelmed is, is angry or frustrated or disappointed. 
But if we want a different reaction, if we want delight, if we want happiness, if we want loyalty, if we want engagement, then we have to ask a different question. Not, not where are the complaints and how do we fix them, but how do we create moments that are special? And in some ways, that's the starting place for the book. Well, and it sounds like at least one much smaller business than the Walt Disney Corporation that has figured out a way to do that is the Magic Castle Hotel in Los Angeles, which based on the photographs of the hotel, it looks like a perfectly fine hotel. It, does, it, it ain't the Four Seasons, but it looks fine. Yeah. But it's the number two rated hotel in all of Los Angeles. Yeah, so I have to, I have to share why this is such a, just a crazy fact that this place is the number two hotel in LA. Has anybody stayed at the Magic Castle? Nobody? Okay, let me just sort of paint a mental picture. Whatever is in your head right now when I say the Magic Castle Hotel could not be further from the truth. Like, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's not a castle. It is neither a castle nor particularly nor, magical looking. Yeah, yeah. And it's even a, the word hotel fun. is a bit of a stretch. Uh, this place is, uh, it's actually a 1950s apartment complex, two-story, that was turned into what effectively is a motel painted bright yellow, totally unremarkable. Um, it's just, it looks like a clean budget motel. And so this, this, this crazy fact that this place that's so modest is outranking the Ritz-Carlton, the Four Seasons, how could you possibly explain that? And what we reveal in the book is that the Magic Castle has developed this capacity, this knack for creating the big moments that matter. My favorite example of this is by the pool, which is about the size of like your neighbor's backyard pool. It's like nothing special about it. But mounted next to the pool is a cherry red phone, kind of mysterious looking. And if you pick it up, hold the handset to your ear, someone answers, popsicle hotline, may I help you? <laughs> and they will bring out cherry and grape and orange popsicles delivered to you poolside on a silver tray by someone wearing white gloves like an English butler, all for free. There is a, a snack menu that uh, allows you to order Cracker Jacks and Sour Patch Kids and Reese's and root beer and cream soda, all for free, just for asking. In fact, the only thing that you have to pay for, ironically, is bottled water. Uh, it's like they're running a reverse nutrition program there. Um, and I saw some kids making use of this and, and the smiles on their faces were just priceless. It was like, they're their parents probably spent a couple of grand doing a family vacation and the thing that they're going to come back and tell their friends about is the free snack menu. Uh, and on and on it goes. There's a board game menu and a movie menu and you can drop off your laundry and they'll wash and fold it for you. There's magicians doing tricks in the lobby. And, and so all the things that they're paying attention to are the moments that people will cherish, the moments that people will tell other people about. And when you start to hear that focus, you can empathize, you can understand how people might actually rate this place the number two hotel in LA. And you know what number three is? The Four Seasons Beverly Hills. You know it must kill those people to lose <laughs> to the man. <laughs> They're angry. Um, it's interesting because there are, there are things like that um, that you write about in the book and then there are sort of larger public companies like VF Corp, um, and Southwest Airlines, who have figured out ways to create moments either for their employees or for their customers. And in both cases, um, they, they end up resulting just on the bottom line and in 
hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars uh, in revenue that they're creating. Um, and in a way for me, the more surprising one is Southwest Airlines mm -hmm. and just sort of the, the charming way that the flight attendants uh, greet you and make their announcements. Because I, as a regular customer of Southwest, I always, that always struck me as just a nice little fun thing. And it never even occurred to me that there was a significant economic upside for Southwest Airlines that they were doing that. Yeah, it's fascinating. So how many of you have, have flown on Southwest like in the last year? How many of you have heard one of their kind of cheeky flight safety announcements? So like you, I always thought of this as just this is Southwest personality coming out. It turns out there's actually a pretty strong tradition of funny flight safety announcements at Southwest to the point where at headquarters there's a wall that enshrines some of the best lines they've created. Um, like one of my favorites is you know, put the oxygen mask first on yourself and then on your child. If you're traveling with one than, more than one child, uh, pay attention to who has the greater earning potential. <laughs> sort of like cynical parenting humor. Um, and so Chip and I started working with their insights team at Southwest. And like many companies, they've got you know, troves of, of data about their customers. And we asked a provocative question. What are these funny flight safety announcements worth? Are they worth anything? Are they just you know, improvisational fun or do they have business value? And it turned out they had the data that they needed to answer that question because they knew you know, they could pinpoint which customers were highlighting these announcements in surveys about their flights and they had purchase histories from these same customers so you could look at what were they spending on flights before the point when they signaled one of these announcements and what do they spend after? Well it turns out when people pinpointed an announcement as a positive thing that happened on one of their flights, over the next year, they would fly on average about another half flight. Now, obviously that's just a statistical average. That's a very difficult thing to pull off in reality, the, the half flight routine. But, uh, so that, that gives you a sense that this is creating real value. It's creating more loyalty. People are choosing Southwest over an alternative for a given route. And so then we took a step further and we said, we knew from, from the surveys that about 1.5% of customers were citing these announcements unprompted in surveys. And so just as a hypothetical, we said, what if we were able to double that from 1.5% of people citing it to 3%? You know, so not some gargantuan leap, but just something that we could realistically implement. What would that be worth? And the number that popped out of the analysis astonished all of us, $138 million in additional revenue annually, every year, because flight attendants were given the license to do something fun that entertained them, that entertained the guests. And to me, this is a reminder that moments matter, but not every moment has to be perfect to deliver a great experience. You know, at the Magic Castle, the rooms are average, the lobby is average, the pool is average, but because some moments are magical, people remember it really fondly. At Southwest, the boarding process is below average. The <laughs> snacks are below average, right? You're packed in in a way that is below average. And yet, because they focus on these moments, these kind of fun, spontaneous moments, because they're friendly, they create these peaks that make the experience remarkable. And I think that's the lesson for all of us who are in the business of serving people is not everything has to be perfect. You know, whelming is a good baseline, 
but we've got to invest in a couple of remarkable moments because that's what people are going to cling to. Coming up, Dan talks about the key to making better decisions. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. All we have is this Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Let's get back to my conversation with best-selling author Dan Heath. You mentioned making better decisions, and in your previous book, one of the things that stuck out to me was uh, sort of a broad analysis that you and your brother did about how companies make decisions. And unfortunately, the analogy that you guys drew was that essentially most companies make decisions in the same way that teenagers make decisions, <laughs> which is not necessarily a compliment. No. So this relates to um, what psychologists call narrow framing. And the research is just very eye-opening on this, and I, I think we can all relate to this from our own experience in life, that, that what people tend to do when they make decisions is they tend to put blinders on and obsess about a single option that's on the table. We call this a whether or not decision. You know, so when we're, when we're struggling with something, for teenagers it's you know, deciding whether or not to go to the party tonight, you know, whether or not to smoke this thing or not, right? No, whether or not to be friends with this person or not, whether or not to send this image over social media. And, and of course, the flaw with that is obvious, that, that when we're thinking about one option and the only real decision we're making is yes or no, do it, don't do it, we're leaving off all of the, the spectrum of possibilities that would be available to us. And organizations make exactly the same mistake again and again and again, and the research of a guy named Paul Nutt confirms that, that the percentage of time that organizations make whether or not decisions is almost indistinguishable from the amount of time teenagers do it. And you can see this most vividly in mergers and acquisitions. And so the research has been absolutely clear on this for decades. A good rule of thumb is if you're considering acquiring a company, don't. <laughs> because the majority of them create no value and, and, in fact, roughly half destroy value. And this hasn't changed very much, but, but it still happens. There are still companies being acquired, still mergers happening. And you can understand from the perspective of narrow framing why this happens. You know, a CEO kind of takes a shine to some other organization you know, maybe it solves a strategic problem, maybe it opens up a new opportunity. There go the blinders, right? There's one option on the table. The question is, do we buy this thing or not? And then with every week that passes, notice how the dynamics of that decision change. You know, you're, you're lobbying the board to get behind it. You're starting to socialize the idea with your company. You're starting to figure out how are we going to pay for this. You're starting to, to make uh, connections at, uh, at the target. And as time goes by, it's really not even a yes or no decision anymore because with one option on the table, no really feels like a failure, doesn't it? Six months go by, you've been researching this merger nonstop, you've been selling it to your team as the next great thing, you've got your board on, you know, behind you on the bandwagon, and then you're going to back away because it's something you learned? Like, isn't that going to put egg on your face? Aren't you going to feel kind of sheepish about that? And so you can see these forces kind of conspire to turn what is originally a yes or no decision, which is bad enough, into a yes or yes decision. And so that's why you see this phenomenon of just gross overpayments for acquisitions that everybody outside the fray can see is crazy, and yet CEOs push forward. 
Is that why creating distance is so important when it comes to making decisions? Uh, I'm just thinking about uh, like Andy Grove at Intel and sort of uh, thinking about the memory chip business and how he and his team wrestled with that until it seemed like finally they were able to um, remove, uh, almost remove themselves from the situation. Yeah, so what was, what was so heartening to Chip and me about this decision-making research is how often the simplest tricks were the most effective. So I think there are two really easy ways to break out of narrow framing predicaments. One is to force yourself to develop one other legitimate option. That's it. You don't need eight options. You don't need 12 options. You just need more than one where you have a legitimate disagreement, especially within organizations. If someone isn't lobbying for option two, you don't have a second good option yet. So just one is enough to kind of pierce that bubble of narrow framing. And to your point, I think the second approach is find a way to distance yourself from the immediate emotions and politics and stresses and anxieties of the situation. And Andy Grove in his memoir talks about a situation where he did that. Uh, it was in the 80s. Uh, Intel had been founded, some people don't remember this, as a producer of memory chips. In fact, for a while they were the world's monopoly provider of memory chips. And then competition increasingly came in the mar market, especially Japanese firms. By the mid-80s, Intel was really languishing in memories. Uh, it wasn't that profitable anymore. Share was shrinking. But meanwhile, they had created the second line of microprocessors, uh, and IBM selected Intel's microprocessor to be the brains of the first PC. And so they had this kind of small but exciting product in the microprocessor and this legacy big business that was, that was sliding in the memory chips. And the question was, what do we do about memory? Do we try to leapfrog the Japanese competition? Do we seed the mainstream of the market to them and pick off specialty markets that are higher margin? Uh, do we get out of the market altogether? And he said that at a certain point, he walked over to the window and he saw in the distance this Ferris wheel rotating and it just struck a chord in him. You know, it felt symbolic of this, this kind of nonstop debate that had been going on. And he turned to Gordon Moore, Gordon Moore of Moore's Law fame, and he said, Gordon, if we were replaced and our successors came in here to take our jobs, what do you think they would do about the memory business? And he said that Gordon Moore replied without hesitation, oh, they would get us out of the memory business for sure. And so Andy Grove said, well, Gordon, shouldn't we just go down to the lobby, walk out the front door, turn around, come back in, and just do it ourselves? And that was the moment that broke the logjam. And what's amazing to me about that is just think of the ROI for this question that he asked. I mean, this was one of the, the, the most important strategic decisions that Intel made in that entire decade. The book is The Power of Moments, Why Certain Experiences Have Extraordinary Impact. It is available everywhere. That's going to do it for this edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.